0: The Bible is the story of the unfolding of covenant. Covenant is the way in which God relates to human beings. God does not relate to human beings apart from the reality of a covenant. And everything that God does in relation to human beings, he does so because of his covenant. Now there are implicit covenants and there are also explicit covenants. The first thing we must understand is what a covenant is. A covenant is more than a contractual agreement. And what separates a covenant from a contractual agreement is the level of solemnity. A covenant is a solemn oath entered into between two individuals. And the product of a covenant is righteousness. Mm -hmm. Now, you hear this term righteousness that's used in Scripture all the time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Righteousness is the fruit of covenant, meaning if you and I enter into a covenant, and we both are faithful to keep the terms of that covenant, we are righteous in relation to one another. When the Scripture speaks of God as being righteous righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne the scripture says the psalmist said that his steadfast love extends to the heavens and his righteousness reaches to the clouds and his faithfulness is like majestic mountains and his wisdom is like the depths of the sea when it speaks of his righteousness it speaks of the fact that he never fails to make good on his covenants now in the ancient world Covenants were not a divine thing. It was a very human thing. A covenant was simply an agreement that two individuals made. But when you made a covenant, you weren't just making a promise to do your best. When you made a covenant, you actually put your life on the line. You were actually stating that if I don't fulfill the terms of this promise, you can kill me. Because to make a covenant, you had to take an animal and cut it in half and then lay the pieces out and the two individuals making the covenant would hold hands and walk between the pieces stating the terms of their covenant. The implication was, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, may it be to me as it was to this animal. That this covenant was made at the cost of the life of this animal. There is no covenant without the loss of life, without the shedding of blood. It was a solemn oath. It was a solemn promise that bound two individuals together. Now, there are implicit covenants and there are explicit covenants. One implicit covenant is bringing a child into the world. You see, if a parent were to bring a child into the world and then throw it in the gutter and you say, why aren't you providing for that child? You say, I never promised that (coughs) child anything. I don't owe that child anything. We would say that's not only a horrible parent, but a horrible person. Why? Because having a child is in and of itself an implicit covenant to care for the child. Yeah. Right. Meaning if you're not going to care for the child, don't have the child. You're, you, you, you have a responsibility because, you, you, because of your action. Now God in the beginning creates the heavens and the earth. And not only does he create the heavens and the earth, but he forms man out of the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul. Then he puts man into a deep sleep, takes a rib out of the side of man and creates woman. And man says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God blesses the two of them. Male and female created he them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, take dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And God blessed them and God enters into covenant with them simply by virtue of the fact that he created them. This is why when Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, he doesn't just kill them and throw them out. He has to put them out of his garden, but he immediately comes with them out of the garden. It's like, it's, it's like somebody comes to your house and is disrespecting you. And you're like, you're going to have to get up out my house. And you take them to the door and you throw them out your house, but then you come out with them and close the door and go, okay, where are we going? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> That's what God does. Adam and Eve mess up in the garden and God goes, y'all going to have to get up out my house. And then he takes them to the door of the garden, throws them out, sets an angel at the door of the garden, and then comes out with them and says, all right, where are we going? That's good. That's good. God throws himself out of the garden when he threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. Right. Because he was in covenant with them. Think of the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? Because they doubted God, God said, you're going to spend 40 years wandering around this desert. You are not entering into the promised land. You are going to wander around this desert for 40 years. And then God went with them. He goes, okay, let's go. (laughs) And he wanders around the desert with them for 40 years. He vanishes them to the desert and then goes to the desert with them. So good. Which flies in the face of this idea of God being a punitive God. Or that the Old Testament is about the wrath of God. But the New Testament is about the grace of God. There's just as much of the grace of God in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. Yeah. That's right, yeah, that's right. Without the Old Testament there wouldn't be a New Testament. The New Testament is the culmination of everything that God planned and set into place in the Old Testament. That is, when Adam and Eve, when God had to throw them out of the house, he immediately instituted a plan to redeem them and bring them back into the house. And that's why Jesus came. That's why there was a New Testament, because God said, I'm in covenant with them, and I cannot ultimately leave them on the outside. i got to make a way to bring them back to the inside. Why? Because I'm in covenant with them. And that was just the implicit covenant. But from Genesis chapter 9, God begins to make explicit covenants in which God begins to state that he is in a special relationship with humankind. He begins to state this explicitly And he begins to invite us to relate to him in specific ways. In Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 13, God spoke to Noah and his sons, saying, As for me, behold, I established my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And what was the covenant? That he would never again destroy the earth by water. And he said, This is the sign of my covenant. Behold, I set my rainbow in the sky. He says, I'm making a covenant that never again will I destroy the earth by water. He didn't say never again will I destroy the earth. He said, just not by water. That's right. By implication, we find out later, next time it's fire. <laughs> 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 but it ain't going to be water. <laughs> so no matter how hard it rains, you ain't got to worry. Because God said, this is the covenant. I'm not going to destroy the earth by water anymore anymore. That's Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to this guy, Abram, when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And God says, get up out of your father's house, go to the place I'll show you, and behold, I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and you'll be a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He said, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. So Abraham obeys, and he goes to the place God shows him, even though he didn't know where he was going. And he gets to the promised land, and he pitches his tents between Bethel and Ai. He's a stranger in this place that he's later going to receive as his inheritance. And the moment he gets to the place God sent him, there's a famine there. It's crazy that God can send you to a place, and then you get there, and it's all bad. We tend to think, if God sent me, it should be all good. Right, right, right. You get married, and you think, this is the spouse God chose for me, and then it all goes wrong. You say, well, I guess I chose wrong. Not necessarily. God opens the door for you to get a new job, and you you get the crap beat out of you there. Sometimes the best thing that can happen for you is the worst thing that happens to you. And so Abraham gets to the promised land, Abram at this time actually, he gets to the promised land... And there in the promised land, there's a famine. As soon as he gets there, the famine happens. Like 45 minutes after he arrives, the famine happens. And there's no food. And Abram goes from trusting the Lord to trusting himself. He hears that there's food down in Egypt. And so he packs up everything and heads down to Egypt. And on the way to Egypt, as he's entering into Egypt, he notices something very important and very strange. He notices how ugly all the women of Egypt are. They must have been because his wife was like 70 years old and she was the most beautiful woman there. <laughs> like, you know, when you're walking in and your 70-year-old wife is the most beautiful woman in the entire place, that's, that's crazy, right? <laughs> and so Abram says to his wife, have you noticed something? She goes, yes, these are some ugly women. Oh, no. And Abram says, it just dawned on me that they're going to kill me to take my wife. And she goes, what you want me to do? He goes, tell them you're my sister. <laughs> and she's like... You gotta be crazy. You're just gonna let them take me? He's like, better you than me. (laughs) He was a horrible husband. He's not trusting the Lord anymore. You see what happens when you start trusting yourself and you make one move on your own strength. Now you gotta make the next move on your own strength. And then you gotta make the next move on your own strength. And then you gotta, and you're in this pattern. And everything had to go bad for Abraham in Egypt. In order for him to realize that he had left the land of promise, the place God told him to go, because he was leaning on his own understanding, because he was making decisions based upon his own ability to see. The fact that things go wrong in the place God sends you is not a sign that God didn't send you. It simply means that God is requiring endurance from you. He's requiring perseverance from you. And whenever God is requiring perseverance from you, it means that he's perfecting you in some way that is essential to your destiny. Yeah. Amen. And so Abram goes back to the promised land in the midst of the famine. He rebuilds his altar there to the Lord and he calls on the name of the Lord. And when he's calling on the name of the Lord, you know what that means? God, I can't do this on my own. I can't figure this out. I, I'm not even qualified to make decisions for my own life. The moment I made the decision to get up and go to the place you showed me, I didn't realize that that was not simply one isolated decision, but that that was a cascading decision, that every decision I make for my life, after that initial decision to follow you, it's got to be led by your spirit. Right, right. Meaning, I can't start out in the spirit and then end up in the flesh. I can't start out trusting the Lord and then end up trusting myself. And I can't go back and forth between trusting God, trusting me, trusting God, trusting me, trusting God, trusting me. I've got to trust God and 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 trust God. And so he goes back to the land of promise. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. In the next chapter, there's this big problem between him and his nephew, Lot. Abram has his own flocks and herds and, and men servants and maidservants. And Lot has his own flocks and herds and men servants and maidservants. And, and they're growing too much. Isn't it interesting? Now in the midst of famine, they're growing. In the midst of famine, they're becoming more wealthy. When you stay in the place that God sends you, even in the midst of famine, you find that you're blessed. Yeah. And the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot begin to fight with one another. And Abram takes Lot aside. He says, listen, nephew, let's not have any disagreement between you and me. We're family. I'll tell you what, the whole land is before us. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You just tell me what part of the land you want, and you got it. And I'll take whatever's left over. And Lot looks over the land, and he sees that the plain of the Jordan, he sees that the the plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And he says... I want that space over here. He looks for the best part of the land that he could possibly take. Why? Because Lot was an opportunist. And opportunists look for the best opportunity for themselves. But Abram was not an opportunist. Abram learned from his previous experience in chapter 12 that it's better to believe in the blessing than it is to follow and to chase the opportunity. So Abram says, it don't matter which way you go, Lot. If you go to the left, me and the blessing will go to the right. And if you go to the right, me and the blessing will go to the left. It doesn't matter what you take because wherever I go, the blessing is going to go with me as long as I remain in the place of obedience. And so Lot went to the well-watered place. But Abram took the less impressive place from the eyes of man. But because he was in the place of obedience, he prospered there. That's right. And then in chapter 14, the five kings come in and they invade the land of Sodom and, and Gomorrah and, and Lot was too close. When Lot took that place that looked good, he didn't realize that it caused him to inch closer and closer to the place of wickedness. Because once you start living a life of opportunism, the next level is a life of sin. Because opportunism, opportunism activates entitlement and entitlement is stimulated by the sin nature. Hmm. Abram prospered because he was not driven by entitlement. If there's one lethal contagion that will destroy your spiritual life, it is the spirit of entitlement. I deserve, I need, I want, I should have. I've seen so many people walk away from their faith in Christ because God did not give them what they deserve. I've seen people walk away from their marriage because their wife or their husband did not give them what they deserve. I've seen people quit jobs that they should have kept because somebody didn't give them what they deserved. If you are focusing your heart and mind on what you deserve, that spirit of entitlement is designed to destroy not only you, but everything that pertains to you, and especially it will destroy your walk with the Lord. It's interesting. I was watching a a documentary on on Ronnie Coleman. You guys know Ronnie Coleman, the bodybuilder? I'm Ronnie Coleman. Of course, you know, Ying knows Ronnie Coleman. And Jay knows Ronnie Coleman. Where's Jay? Where's Jay at? Jay, of course, he knows Ronnie Coleman. Have you guys seen this dude's Instagram? He's a monster. Yeah, he's, he's a beast. And Ying, you're a beast too. Don't give me a beast. But Ronnie Coleman, he was a bodybuilder, and he was just happy to be competing. He never thought that he would ever be at that level to be a, a professional bodybuilder. But he got into the top of the top of the top, and he was placing like eighth and ninth. Yeah, he was doing roids, but you know, he was, you know, he was placing eighth and ninth. And, and when, he got, when, he was, when he got like ninth place in a tournament, he was like, man, this is awesome. I got ninth place. He was so happy. He felt so privileged just to be there. And then all of a sudden, there was this shift where suddenly he won the Mr. He won first place in the Mr. Olympia. What year was that, Ying? His first one? Like 1990 something? (laughs) I don't know. When he won first place in Mr. Olympia, he collapsed to the floor and, and wept. Why? Because he felt so unworthy. He was like, this is unreal. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm standing in this place. This is crazy. I don't deserve this at all. This is totally grace. This is, this is unmerited favor. And then what happened? He won the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. And then he won eight in a row. And when he got to the ninth one... Entitlement had kicked in, and he just thought he was going to win by just walking in the door. And he won second place in the ninth one. And he was visibly disturbed. When they announced, uh, what was the guy's name? Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler as the winner. Ronnie Coleman was like, visibly disappointed. He went from, I don't deserve to be here. To what you're talking about, I didn't win first place. Because what happened between the first tournament and the ninth tournament was entitlement. Mm. He went from I don't deserve this to I do deserve this and they better give me mines. Isn't that interesting that something you you think, wow, I don't deserve this. Once you get it, it can become you better not take this from me. This is mine. Mm. Lot was driven by entitlement. Abram was driven by trust in God. And trust in God and entitlement are the antithesis of one another. And so Lot in chapter 14 of Genesis gets carried off by these five kings. And Abram, he's up in the less desirable place and because he's in the less desirable place but the place where the blessing is secretly working in his life He's safe from this attack of the enemy. Lot didn't realize that by moving into this desirable place, he actually moved right into the path of the enemy. Right into the place where the attack of the enemy would transpire. You know, sometimes we live too close to sin and too far away from God. You say, I'm not in sin. Yeah, but you're living too close to it. Way too close. You know, kind of like David, you know, that that year that he didn't go to war when when it was time for the kings to go to war and he decided to stay home. And then he decided one night, you know, boredom, boredom is (laughs) the key that unlocks the door of sin. In his boredom, he decides to walk out on his balcony and look out over the city of Jerusalem. And it happened to be just the time when the women were bathing. And the women happened to bathe on the roofs of their houses. And the king's palace was the only place high enough to look down on the roofs of all the houses. And all of their husbands were away at war. And David decides, I think I'm just going to stroll out on my... You know what I mean? It's like, David, you ain't fooling nobody. Everybody knows what you're doing. And he's just looking down at all the women in his kingdom. I'm just looking. I'm not doing nothing. I'm just looking. And then he goes who is that? He calls a servant over. Who is that? And now somebody else is looking. (laughs) And a servant goes, that one taking a bath? He's like, yeah, that's Bathsheba. (laughs) That was her name, Bathsheba. She was taking a bath. And David goes, bring her, invite her to tea. I just want to meet with her. I just want to have tea with her. He's inching closer and closer to sin. He ends up basically, in a sense, manipulating her into sex, if not raping her. She gets pregnant. I mean, she literally, in her position, could not say no to the king. No matter what she desired, she was in no place to say no to the king. She could not turn the king down. She gets pregnant, and David has her husband killed out on the battlefield. Why? He was living too close to sin and too far from the Lord. Lot was living too close to sin and too far from the Lord. Proximity. So Abram when he hears that Lot had been taken off, he calls the 318 men that were born in his household who were trained for war. They armed themselves with swords and they go out in pursuit. And Abram goes to war with the five kings and destroys them and takes back everything and brings back everything and brings it back down to the... And he, he restores Lot and the family and all of the spoils and everything. And the king of Sodom comes out and, and tries to bless him and tries to give him money. And Abram says, I don't want your money. I don't live for the opportunity. I live for obedience. I'm not an opportunist. I'm an obedient. That's not even a word. I just made that up. Obediest. (laughs) And Abram turns down this huge opportunity to become wealthy at the end of chapter 14. And then at the beginning of chapter 15 of Genesis, God speaks to Abram and says, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abram, you turned down this very great reward, and I'm so pleased with that because I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram says, but what can you give me, though? (laughs) Translation, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) Abram is in obedience, but he's got a heart that is questioning God. Do you know it's possible to obey God and question God in your heart at the same time? It's possible to obey God but feel like God is not giving you something you deserve at the same time? Mm -hmm. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. But what can you give me, though? saying that I go childless. And one of my slaves, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be my heir. When I die, I don't have a son to give all of my wealth to. My wealth is going to my slave. What can you do for me? What good does it do me for you to tell me that you're my great reward when I'm barren? And I've turned down opportunity after opportunity to become wealthy, and I've turned down the blessing. But you keep telling me you're my blessing. Sometimes the Lord wants to see how much we value him and him alone. Do we value the blessing or the blessor? Mm. Sometimes the only blessing God gives you is himself and his presence. But he wants to see how much do you value me? How much do you value my presence? Do you only value what you can get from me? Or do you value me? Yeah, that's good. My spiritual father, Pastor Robert Daniels, was telling me that he was crying out to the Lord one day because God was not giving him some things that he had been praying and asking God for, and he was crying out, God, how long, how long? And God spoke to him and said, why am I not enough for you? Wow, You're enough for me. Why is being with me not enough for you? Being with you is enough for me. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your great reward, but what can you give me, seeing that I go childless, and one born in my household, Eliezer of Damascus, will be my heir. And God speaks to him and says, No, your servant will not be your heir, but a son who comes from your own body. And then God says, Abram, go outside. And he goes outside. Look up at the stars. Count them. Abram says, I can't count them. God says, So shall your children be. So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed God. Genesis fifteen seven. And he accounted it to him as righteousness. Watch this. Remember, righteousness, covenant. Righteousness is the fruit of covenant. A covenant is, an, is, is a, a solemn oath that God makes, a, so, a solemn oath between two individuals. And when God brings you into covenant, he says, you and me, we're in relationship. Righteousness is the fruit of that covenant. This is a very important verse of scripture. Abram says, God... You know what? I believe you. And God says, you're righteous. That's all you have to do to fulfill your covenant with me. That's all you have to do to fulfill. And God hadn't even brought Abram into covenant with him yet. But God says, you fulfilled the covenant before we even made it. Why? Because you believe me. Because you trust me. Because you will not succumb to hopelessness. Because you will not, because you refuse to look at your situation and say, no matter what I do, it won't change. Mm. You refuse to look at your situation and say, no matter how long I pray, God doesn't hear me. Mm. Because you refuse to walk through hardship and say, God must not love me. If God loves me so much, how come I'm walking through this? Believing God, if you want to know what it means to walk in covenant with God, you've got to simply believe Him you got to simply trust Him. Regardless of what comes or goes, you must trust Him. You must believe Him. You must believe what He says. You must hold on to His unfailing love. Holding on, that's all you need to do. That's all God requires of you. He doesn't require you to move to Africa and be a missionary. He doesn't require you to cut off your arm or give your blood or submit to person. That's not even what He's looking for. All He's looking for is, no matter what I go through, I trust in you. And then God says, after he says to Abram, you're righteous. God accounted it to him as righteousness. Abram said, I didn't even know we were in covenant yet. God said, I was getting to that. And then God comes to Abram and makes covenant with him. He says, I need, I, I need you to get the following animals. Abram gets out his pen and paper and starts writing down the animals. And God says, I need you to get a heifer, and I need you to get a couple of birds. And, I need, and he gets the animals, and God says, he says, what do I do with these animals? God says, cut them up, cut them in half. And Abram saws those animals in half. And God says, lay out the pieces. We're making a covenant. And Abram lays out the pieces, and, and then God, he says, I'm here. What do I do? God says, wait. And he waits And he has to beat off the buzzards who are coming down to try to eat the the sacrifice. Sometimes when God is getting ready to enter into covenant with you, you got to beat off the buzzards that are coming to eat up your sacrifice. The buzzards that are telling you this isn't doing any good. The buzzards that are telling you if you keep serving like this, if you keep giving like this, if you keep giving of yourself to God in this way, you're going to end up with nothing. God is not coming. Abraham had to beat off the buzzards and Wait. And that's the hardest time when nothing is happening. When you're praying, but nothing is changing. When you're giving, but nothing is changing. When you're serving, but nothing... You're obeying and you're doing what you know God called you to do, but it's not doing any good. I hear this all the time. I see this in marriages all the time. But I did the right thing and she still got mad at me. But I said the right thing and he still got mad at me. Like, it didn't work. I tried it, but it didn't work. I said, well, what did you do? So then I just cussed her out. (laughs) So you did the right thing, but you didn't keep doing the right thing. You said the right thing, but you changed as soon as you felt that the right thing didn't work. The right thing is not supposed to work. It's just right. Mm. Mm. And then evening comes. And the scripture said, a deep sleep fell on Abram and, and terror or horror and a great darkness, meaning... The presence of God was coming. You know, the presence of God is actually a terrifying thing. Yeah. It's the most wonderfully terrifying thing you will ever experience in your life. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch a horror movie and you like that being scared, you know what I mean? You're scared, but it's like, ooh, that was so good. And you just, but like ooh, you know what I mean? I just, ah, you, know? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, you like that fear, you know, you see people like that who have that, you know, that that affliction where they like horror movies. I don't like horror movies. I can't watch, you know, I was talking to somebody who's like, man, I can't sleep at night. And will you pray for me? And I'm like, yeah. And I was just about to pray for him. I said, wait a minute, what kind of movies do you watch? He was like, last night I watched uh, the book of Satan and the night before that, Satan's son. And and he was naming all these demonic movies. I'm like, maybe if you stop watching movies about Satan, (laughs) you might be able to sleep a little better at night. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you want me to pray for you, but then then tonight you're going to watch Satan and his demons. (laughs) Part two, (laughs) return of the devil. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's like, stop watching those movies but but what I'm saying is that that feeling of you know watching a thriller or a horror movie where you're scared but you like like I hear people talk I, I mean I envy people who can do that I, I can't do that but I hear people say oh, I want to watch that movie when I see the pre when I even watch previews of horror movies I'm like, ooh, I'm not going anywhere near that movie I need to watch a good movie you know an, an uplifting inspiring movie you know but that where you like that fear, that's what it's like. That's what the presence of God is like. I've had experiences in the presence of God where the presence of God came so strong that I thought he was going to kill me. Mm-hmm. But yet my, my spirit was crying out, more, Lord, yeah. more. Like, like killing me would be the like, if your presence came so strong that I died that would be the craziest, like, that would be the most awesome. I'd be up in heaven and be like, that was crazy. <laughs> Man, that was awesome. <laughs> i was like, can I call my friend? Dude, you got to ask God to kill you. Like, that, like, that's the most wonderful experience that you will ever experience is God's presence comes so strong that you die. <laughs> anyway, it's a good thing. I promise you, it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good? I mean, that's Moses, right? Like God, like God, Moses says, I just want to see your glory. Yeah. And God said, no, you can't see my face and live. And Moses like, just kill me. I mean, I don't need to live. I just need to see your face. <laughs> and God said, no, 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 I can't do that. But what I can do is I can hide you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand, pass by you, and then remove my hand. And you can, you can see the back of me passing by. And Abram's like, well, I mean, uh, Moses is like, if that's what I get, that's what I get. And so God takes him, hides him in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, passes by and moves his hand. And Moses went, oh, and he collapsed like a dead man. He was like, oh, that's bad. <laughs> just, I'm dead. <laughs> like, he thought he was dead because <laughs> he saw the back of God. Like, that's crazy, right? And he got up. He's like, again, again, <laughs> like, I literally thought I died right there. I'm still alive. How did that happen? Like, God has to raise you from the dead after he, <laughs> after he he kills you. <laughs> it's the most wonderful thing to be killed by the Lord. This great terror and this great darkness and this deep sleep comes over Abram. And then all of a sudden, a burning torch and a smoking fire pot appear. This is God appearing in the form of a, of a torch and a fire pot. And God Passes through the pieces and makes covenant with Abram. Isn't it interesting that Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. God passes through the pieces. Abram is not the one that God asks for promises. God passes through the pieces and God makes the promises. And God makes promises with Abram. This is an individual covenant. But the thing that you must understand is the Old Testament concept of inclusive representation. Inclusive representation means that whoever is in Abram the covenant applies not only to Abram but whoever is in his loins. And in the loins of Abram at the moment God makes covenant with him is all of the people of Israel who are to come. And through extension all of us who have the faith of Abram. That God says Abram believed God and God says you're righteous. That faith that brings righteousness, whoever is of that faith, we are all sons and daughters of Abram. That means that we were in Abram when God made covenant with him, which means that the covenant God made with Abram extends to all who would come from Abram. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you how I know this. Because God makes covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, and then in Exodus chapter 2... When the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, the scripture says they groaned to the Lord in their bondage. Look, at that. Look I'm going to show you this. In Exodus chapter 2, I want you to see this, verse 23 through 25. Now, what happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Verse 24, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Why did the whole exodus happen? Why did God come and bring them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? Because he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Meaning it was not an individual covenant. It was actually a corporate covenant. God entered into, into covenant with Abraham on behalf of everyone who would come after him. Wow. His covenant was corporate, not just individual. And we miss this because we can read Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and we can get it in our minds and hearts that God makes covenants with individuals and I'm just going to go home and pray till I get my individual covenant with God and it's not like that. You don't get your own covenant. It's the covenant with Abraham. And God's going to bless you because of the covenant he made with Abraham. God heals you because of the covenant he made with Abraham. And he brings the people of Egypt, uh, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Sends the ten plagues. Parts the Red Sea. Brings them to Mount Sinai. And then says to Moses, sanctify the people for three days. And then on the third day, God comes and sits on Mount Sinai. And there's thundering and lightning. The mountain is burning with fire. And then all of a sudden, there's the sound of the trumpet. There's thunder and lightnings and the voice of words. God speaks from the mountain. I am Yahweh Eloheinu, who brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. And what does Moses do? He takes the blood of bulls and goats, and he sprinkles the entire multitude. We see this in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7, 8, and 9. 7 and 8. Moses sprinkles the entire multitude with the blood of bulls and goats and says, This is the blood of the covenant that God makes with you today. This is where the people of God were born. The nation of Israel was born out of this covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. This is the blood of the covenant. God is making a covenant with you. God is binding himself to you in covenant today. Contractual agreement, but it's more solemn than that. God is binding himself. Now we got to take a step back here for a second. Because the fact that God passes between the pieces and God is the one who makes the promises doesn't mean that we don't have a part in the covenant. Mm. Doesn't mean that we have no covenant responsibilities. Because in Genesis 17, we're going to backtrack just for a second. In Genesis 17, God comes to Abram and says, remember we made covenant two chapters ago? Abraham was like, yeah, I remember that. And God's like, well, now I'm going to tell you what your part in the covenant is. I, what you need me to do? God said, you're going to take the sign of circumcision. You and every male, some people looked up, (laughs) you know, when I said circumcision, you and every male in your household are going to be circumcised. And anyone who is not circumcised, throw them out. They're not a part, they have broken my covenant. And Abraham, at what, 90-something years old, had to go home that day and get circumcised. (laughs) And then he had to circumcise every male in his household and his son, Ishmael, Isaac wasn't born yet. I mean, it was bloody. And from that day forward, every child of Abraham, everyone in the Abrahamic line was circumcised on the eighth day after being born. The sign of circumcision, God says, you're going to take the sign of circumcision. What's that all about? Because, you know, I mean, most of us do get circumcised, but it's not about the covenant with Abraham anymore, right? I mean, if you're not circumcised, you know, you may look funny at the gym, but it doesn't mean you're, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean you're not in the covenant anymore, right? It's not about the covenant anymore. So what is it it all about? What it's all about is God says to Abraham, Abraham, this is your part in the covenant. You're going to present your body to me. You're You're going to surrender your body. What I want is a piece of your flesh. I want you to surrender your body. Paul gives this to us. He tells us what New Testament circumcision is about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies... Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. The surrender of your body to God is the New Testament version of circumcision. And the surrender of your body to God is about renouncing your right to the fulfillment of self-desires. It's about making the decision that I do not live a life of entitlement anymore. It's about renouncing my wants and renouncing my lusts and renouncing my desires and renouncing my cravings. It's about surrendering my body to God. Because a lot of believers, we have this idea, my body belongs to me, but my soul belongs to Jesus. Absolutely not. Your soul belongs to Jesus. Your body belongs to Jesus. Your mind belongs to Jesus. Your heart belongs to Jesus. Every part of you belongs to Jesus. If you are his, you have been bought with the price, and he bought not just your soul, he bought your body. The surrender of your body to God, I hear a lot of people claiming to be Christians with unsurrendered bodies. Mm -hmm. The one thing I refuse to do is surrender my body to God. God says, no, I don't need any great feet from you. I just need your surrender. Mm -hmm. Surrender. people of God in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. I'm going to bring this to a close soon. God enters into covenant with them through the blood of bulls and goats. Then we get to Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 and following. And God says through the prophet Jeremiah, the day is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, which is not like the one I made with their fathers," says the Lord, which covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them. You hear what God is saying? I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It's a corporate covenant. And it's not going to be like the one I made at Mount Sinai. Why? They broke that covenant. What were the parts of that covenant? The sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats and then the giving of the law. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take to yourself any graven images You shall not take the name of Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord your God, in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not steal. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. God says, the day is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, but it's not going to be like the one I made with their fathers. He says, but in this day, I will write my laws in their minds and in their hearts will I write them. He says, the old covenant was external. It came on tablets of stone. The new new covenant is internal. It's going to be written on the human heart and the human mind. The old covenant came with an external revelation, the glory of God sitting on Mount Sinai. The new covenant is coming with an internal revelation, the Holy Spirit indwelling the heart and mind of every believer. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's a new covenant with the house of Israel. It's a new covenant with the people of God. It's a corporate covenant, not an individual covenant. And nobody understood what that meant until one day on the Mount of Olives when Jesus sits with his disciples and they celebrate the Passover feast. And when they finish the Passover feast and everything is done, the disciples are thinking it's time to clean up, but instead Jesus takes a piece of matzah And he holds it up before his disciples and says, you see this? They say, we see it. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and they take it and they eat it. And then he lifts up a cup of wine and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah says, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant. Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the redemption of many. And I was looking at this in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 26, 26 or 27. The scripture says, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood, but all of you have to drink from it. Meaning, what forms your covenant with one another is the fact that you are in covenant with me. What we're getting to is that the church is a covenant community. But our our covenant is not primarily with one another. Our covenant is with Jesus Christ. And we have covenant with one another only by virtue of the fact that we each individually are in covenant with Jesus Christ. Our corporate covenant is the outflow of our individual faith in Jesus Christ. If I refuse to drink from the cup, I actually have no covenant with you. I might have friendship with you. See, this is the thing. The fellowship of the body of Christ is born out of covenant, not out of mutual interest. And the church often functions as a club. Because we go there because we like the people. And we experience this most acutely in community groups because I go to my community group just to hang out because I like to hang out and I like the people in my community group. I remember, you know, for years uh, (laughs) on the Emeryville side of the bay, we tried for years to create community groups and they never worked. Why? Because, I mean, I I finally after years, I had a congregational meeting. I gathered people together, say, what do you want? Like, what? What do you want? Like, what can I do to get you in community groups? And people were like, I don't like the people in my community group. I want to be in a community group with people who are older. And then other people, I don't like the people in my community group. I want to be in one with people who are younger. And then somebody else, I want the community groups to be about our stage in life. I'm a mother and I want to be in a community group with other mothers. And then somebody else, I want it to be about our jobs. I'm in the tech industry. I want to be with other people in the tech industry. And it's all about mutual interest. Forming fellowship around what we like and what we want, and we're missing the point. That yeah. what binds us together is not our stage in life, it's not our culture, it's not our work, it's not our interests, it's not our age. Yeah. That what binds us together is the fact that I'm drinking from the same cup that you're drinking from. And when I look next to me and see that you're drinking from the cup. And then he hands it and he's drinking from the cup. And he hands it and we're all drinking from the same cup. We're bound in covenant together because of our covenant Lord. Because our eyes are not on one another. But our eyes are on our covenant Lord. He says drink from it all of you. If you want to be in this circle, you got to drink from this cup. If you're not willing to drink from this cup, you can't be in this circle. This is not simply a place to hang out. This is a place of covenant. Yeah. And this is where God's called us to be countercultural, especially in the city of San Francisco. You know what I found out? In the city of San Francisco, almost no church has membership. Mm. Churches don't do membership. Why? Because San Franciscans won't do it. That's what I keep hearing. San Franciscans don't want membership. The people are too flaky. The people want to come and go as they please. I'm just going to hang out at this church for a little while, and then I'll go to that church for a little while, and then I'll go to this church for a little while, and then I'll go to this church for a little while. I don't want to be a member. I don't want to go through a process of entering into covenant. And God's called us to be countercultural. Countercultural means to be a covenant people in the midst of a non-covenantal context. To say that this is a disconnected, disparate, disjointed place. But God has called us to be connected and jointed and in covenant with one another. Why? And I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm in covenant with the universal church. I'm not in covenant with the local church. That's like, that's like saying, well, I believe in the universal institution of marriage. I don't actually have a wife. <laughs> If you ain't got no wife, how do you have an institutional marriage? Because I believe in the institution. If you're, if you're not a part of a local church, you're not a part of the universal church. I'm sorry. No. The universal church only becomes visible at the local level. That's yeah. right. And 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 the the covenant with the body of Christ is only experienced at the local level. Do you know what it was all about in the early church when they celebrated the Eucharist, the body and blood of our Lord? It was about them entering into covenant with God and with one another. It was not simply about a sacrament, a ritual of the church. It was an act of covenant making. That if I drink from the cup that you drink from, if I eat of the bread that you eat of, I am in covenant with you, and you are in covenant with me, and we are bound together, heart and soul, because we are the covenant community. And whatever church I'm a part of, I'm a part of a covenant community. And I'm not just there to hang out, and I'm not just there to glean, but I'm there to be the church, not simply to go to the church. This is the new Covenant in my blood. He didn't even just say, this is the new way into heaven, which is what we preach, right? Just confess your sins and you get to go to heaven. Jesus said, no, no, no. This is not just about an eternal insurance policy. This is about covenant. And he says, drink of it, all of you. All of you. Y'all better drink this. Y'all better drink this, all of you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. I saw this in a new way. Remembrance, another way of thinking about remembrance is the reversal of dismembrance. Because when you dismember something, you break it apart. Mm. But when you remember something, you put it back together again. Mm. And the body of Christ in the earth has been dismembered If there's anything that the devil wants to do is dismember the body of Christ, to tear us apart, to tear limbs off the body of Christ, to tear us apart. And to make us disconnected and dismembered from one another. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. When we take the cup and when we take the bread, we're not simply calling to mind what Jesus did, but we're actually putting the body of Christ back together again because we're coming back to the covenantal basis of what it means to be the people of God. That is, we are a people in covenant. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And then the early church in Acts chapter 2, the 120 are gathered in the upper room. Isn't it interesting that Jesus in his lifetime ministered to crowds of thousands, but after his death and resurrection, there were only 120 left. Crowds of thousands. He fed the 5,000 plus women and children. There was 5,000 men plus women and children. All of them ate the bread and the fish. 20,000 people, but where were they after his death and resurrection? There were only 120 who were actually in covenant. 120 who said, you know what? When the stuff, when, when the tough gets going, when the going gets tough, I'm sticking it out. I'm going to take a licking and keep on ticking. 120 real disciples who were in covenant and covenant was, I may, I may not understand. But I don't have to understand. My covenant is not based on understanding. But that 120 people, they had a testimony. When the, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, and Peter preached that first Pentecost sermon... There was a crowd of thousands outside and Peter preaches that sermon and says they were cut to the heart and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you, to your children, to as many as are far off, even to as many as the Lord our God shall call. And they confessed their sins and they were baptized. And what happened? There were about 3,000 added to the church that day, it says. 3,000 added to the church. Not 3,000 who got to go to heaven when they died. 3,000 added to the church, which means they instantly became a covenant community of 3,000 people. And how do we understand that covenant community? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is my last point. Somebody should come to the keyboard. (laughs) That will set all your hearts and minds at ease. As soon as somebody starts playing, you're like, oh, thank God. (laughs) I was wondering how long this was going to (laughs) go. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves. This This is what it looked like to be a part of the early church. It didn't say they attended Sunday service without fail. They devoted themselves. Do you know what devotion is? It's bigger than commitment. Commitment has to do with the alignment of an agenda. You commit yourself to a politician. But as soon as that politician's agenda moves from yours, you change your commitment because what you're actually committed to is your own agenda. It's a little loud. But devotion... Is a state of commitment that is without agenda. It means no matter what, I'm bound to you. They devoted themselves. You know the whole thing about the the, the chicken, the the uh, the eggs and bacon. Yeah, when you eat eggs and bacon, there's a different relationship to your breakfast that the chicken and the pig have, because the chicken made a contribution to your breakfast. But the pig was actually in your breakfast. <laughs> the chicken was committed, the pig was devoted. Wow. Wow. Are you committed to the church or are you devoted to the house of God? Are you making a contribution to the house or are you in the house? Wow, wow, wow. That's it. That's it. Like, God's called us not just to go to church, but to be the church. We're to be the pig, not the chicken. We are up in it. Mm -hmm. The house is built on my bacon. (laughs) I'm going to put my bacon in it. They devoted themselves. And what did they devote themselves to? Number one, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. meant that when the, the apostles taught, they didn't simply listen, but they listened to possess, not simply to understand. They said, I'm going to get this. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to possess this. I'm going to reduplicate this in my life. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, koinonia. What is fellowship? In the church, we've used the term fellowship so loosely that we think anytime there's food, there's fellowship. And we will have fellowship after the service in the fellowship hall. And what that literally means is there's going to be some chips and salsa in there. Anytime you throw in some chips and salsa, you got fellowship. <laughs> fellowship is more than chips and salsa. The word in the Greek, koinonia, it means joint ownership. Yeah. Wow. The fellowship was them possessing together the reality of the word and the spirit that was made available in their gathering. And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves not just to listening to the teaching of the apostles, but to possessing together the truth to which they had been entrusted they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the fellowship to the breaking of bread which indicates the Eucharist or the communion the body and blood of the Lord but it was a little bit more than that it wasn't just that they devoted themselves to taking communion but the breaking of bread was a symbol of service in the house To the breaking of bread, meaning each of them broke the bread together. The breaking of bread, remember the feeding of the 5,000? The crowds, to the crowds, Jesus said, sit down. To the disciples, he broke the bread and said, go feed the crowds. The members of the early church were the ones who were breakers of bread. Each disciple had a hunk of bread and they had to go through the crowd and break a piece off and give it. And break a piece off and give it. And break a piece off and give it. Are you a receiver of bread or a breaker of bread? The members of the early church devoted themselves to the actual breaking of the bread, not simply the partaking of the bread. There's a lot of people who come to the body of Christ for 20 years and they're nothing more than receivers of bread. I come to receive and then I leave the church if it don't have the right, you know, they don't have anything for me. I don't like the worship. Well, good. We ain't worshiping you anyway. (laughs) If he don't like the worship, that's another problem. Yeah. But if you don't like the worship, I could live with that. <laughs> Somebody said, I left that church because they weren't doing my worship anymore. I'm like, well, I don't, well I'm glad they weren't doing your worship. <laughs> I hope they were doing his worship. That's good. They devoted themselves and to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Not only willing participants... But they were devoted to the corporate prayer, to gathering together, to seek the face of God. And this is why they turned the world upside down in a short period of time. If we could be that kind of church, we will turn San Francisco upside down in a matter of a year, in a matter of six months. We'll turn, and I don't care if there's only 60 of us, 70 of us, 80 of us in a room, if we become a church of 80 people who are devoted like they were devoted. We will turn this city, we'll turn the whole Bay Area upside down. (laughs) Wow. That was their expression of covenant devotion. Not just attendance, but devotion. And this is what it means to be the body of Christ, a covenant people. And covenant is not in the signing of a piece of paper covenant is in the devotion of the heart. It's the law written on the heart and written on the mind. And it starts with the fact that we are devoted first and foremost to God. But because we are devoted to God, when we come into contact with one another, we're devoted to one another. If I'm devoted to God, I cannot help but be devoted to you. And if I can help being devoted to you, I'm probably not devoted to God. Jesus said, If you can't love your brother whom you can see, don't say you love God whom you cannot see. Whoever says he loves God but doesn't love his brother, that's a liar. And Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is the meaning of the new covenant. Let's pray. Precious heavenly Father, I speak your blessing over each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. Lord, I pray you teach us to be the church. Teach us to be the church. Not just to go to church, but to be the church. I pray you put a fire in our hearts. Lord, you put us here for a reason. I believe you put us here to turn San Francisco upside down. You've put us here to have such an impact on this city. You did not send us to San Francisco to simply sit on the sidelines. You sent us to San Francisco to incite a riot, to be a house of revival fire. But Lord, it only happens if we devote ourselves, if we become a covenant community. And Father, I pray that that fire would burn in each and every one of our hearts. I want to be a part of the covenant community. I want to be a part of the covenant community it's not about control it's not about manipulation it's not about even never getting to leave it's not about any of that it's not about butts and seats and dollars and plates it's not about names signed on the dotted line it's about the heart it's about the heart it's about the heart And Lord, we are living in one of the most flaky and unfaithful cultures in the world in which nobody wants to be devoted to anything. Marriages are breaking up because we don't want to be devoted. Families are falling apart because we don't want to be devoted to God, the body of Christ. We are supposed to be a beacon of hope, a sign of faithfulness, a symbol of unity. And Lord, if we become that, we'll experience fellowship and camaraderie at a level that we have never known before in our lives. You have for us a level of depth, of connection, and of love, even of shared interest, when that interest is kingdom, like we've never known before. This is what we actually long for. This is what we actually cry out for in our hearts. But Holy Spirit, I pray you do it. Settle it into our hearts. Settle it into our minds that we are of you. And because we are of you, we are of one another. I speak blessing and encouragement in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.